A'udhu Billah Minash Shaitan Al-Ayn Ar-Rajeem Bismillah Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon His Holy Prophet Muhammad and the purified members of His household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad wa ajjal farajahum. Brothers, sisters, and respected viewers, Assalamu alaikum jami'an wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And thank you once again for joining us on this new series that we're beginning entitled Life, the Islamic Answer. In the first lecture, we took a little bit of time to try to explain what we refer to as the complexity of the world in which we live. And when we talked about all the different dimensions and all the different events and all the different aspects of our present-day world, of the current world, the question at the end of all of this is, are we still sure what it means to live Islamically in this type of world? Can we still safely say that we know how to live Islamically in a world where there is so much complexity, there, there is so much doubt and relativity and ambiguity, or are things still straightforward? And does Islam, when we look at the complexity of the issues, a lot of the issues we talked about, we didn't mention them to say, you know, this is right or this is wrong. When we say there's complexity, it's because there are no straightforward answers. And in a lot of cases we said, regardless of whether you choose to do A or its alternative, B or its alternative, you are feeding into something or something else. And at times it is not clear that there is one good, pure and right answer. There is ambiguity and there are compromises and there are sacrifices and there are costs to everything that you're doing and choosing. So does Islam have anything to say about any of this? Does it have anything to give us, to provide to us so that it, help, it can help us navigate this ambiguity of this world? And when we said Islam, we also said that we want to focus here not on our or anyone else's opinions about these things. There are a lot of opinions and there are a lot of theories and books and lectures and so on and so forth. We want to go back to the original sources of Islam. We want to go back to the Holy Quran and we want to go back to the narrations of the Holy Prophet and Ahlul Bayt to try to see what are the authentic original teachings and from there of course, they might not talk about everything that we're talking about in the same manner because those things did not exist. These phenomena, these reality did not exist in their time. But they may still give us the general principles from which we can extract a lot of the applications that we need nowadays. And that said, we may still be surprised to find a lot of the things that we may think are very revolutionary and very... Uh, you know, new and novel and original and never encountered before in humanity addressed one way or another directly in a lot of the ahadith and a lot of the verses of the Holy Quran. It's just a matter of seeing them in that light, seeing them in a new light. And so the idea here was that we wanted to show the, that there is an urgency, there is a relevance, there is a need for us to address these issues. 
This is all in addition to where we left off, especially for those who were with us from the beginning of the previous series, the series on beliefs and where we ended and where we were talking about, for instance, the idea that, and so this is the more, we've been talking more about the worldly dimension of all of this, but there's a religious dimension, there's a spiritual dimension to all of this. We ended the previous series on a, a note, on a, let's call, consider it a high note or an opening up of the discussion on the afterlife and beyond. And what does that mean for our life in this world? And we said, especially, the more we understand how the afterlife works, the more we see that it depends very much on how we lived our lives here. As we said, the manner, we have in the narrations, let's skip the verses for now, in the narrations, for instance, we have a narration, in principle, it's correct too, and we established it uh, through scripture, and we established it rationally, but we also have a narration for it that says, كَمَا تَعِيشُونَ تَمُوتُونَ Right? As you live, so shall you die. Because we said there are many different ways of dying. And as you die, so shall you be resurrected. Your afterlife depends on the manner in which you lived in this world. So again, if we want to be transitioning from the previous series into this one, the question is, so how are we supposed to live? So that this dying is like we want it to be, and this afterlife and resurrection is also like we want it to be. That's one. We also talked about, in the previous series, we talked about the main distinction of the human being is that the human being has an enormous potential. This is, if you are to describe, to, to list, to enumerate, to identify the one thing that distinguishes the human being from any other creature, it's how much potential Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put in this creature as opposed to any other creature. This is our distinction. Which means that on our own, we may be neutral, but because of the potential we have, we may become the best of the creatures of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, better than any other thing He has created, and we may also become the worst of the creatures that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created. Other creatures, we said, some of them don't have any flexibility, any freedom of choice from our point of view based on what we know and others have limited nothing comes close to what a human has in terms of a potential in surah at-teen allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says laqad khalaqna al-insana fi ahsan taqwim surely we have created the human being in the best form and the best structure and the best way thumma radadnahu asfala safilin and then we relegated him we cast him down to the lowest of the low but these two verses, and this is not time for the tafsir of these verses, but these two verses are showing the two extremes. That a human being can be both. We gave him the potential for both. To be the best of the best and the worst of the worst. So again, the question from this point of view is, so how do I live my life in the complexity of this world so that I am closer to the best of the best and not the worst of the worst? So no matter how much, how you want to look at it, we have questions that need answering, and these questions have to do with the manner in which we have to live our practical lives. So that was, I'll say, a wrap-up, a very quick wrap-up of what we tried to cover and the main points we tried to get at or get to from the first lecture. In the second lecture, we tried to focus on the first theme in this series. 
And inshallah, we're continuing with this theme today and a few more lectures. And we said the first theme in this series is going to be, and inshallah, the reason why for it is already clear, but it's going to become a lot more clear starting from today's lecture. The first theme is going to be the theme of knowledge in Islam. What does Islam have to say about knowledge? So before we start looking at what Islam says about knowledge, our introduction was based on Let's try to look at the state of the world today, because that's again the point of the series. Where is the world headed? And when you look at the different dimensions of human societies today, the evolution of humanity and what it has led up to until today, and where it seems to still be heading, if there is one thing we can say about today's world, it's that knowledge, information, has become a very central, crucial, important factor. And that's why we basically dedicated the entire lecture to explaining what are information and knowledge societies and what we mean by information capitalism or the fourth industrial revolution. It's to show that in today's world, the new capital, if you want to have power, if you want to have prestige, if you want to be at the center no matter what kind of power we're talking about, legislative, social, uh, monetary, so on and so forth, everything goes through knowledge. Your ability to control knowledge, the flows of knowledge. How much of it can you produce? How much of it can you control? How much of it can you access and reuse and recycle into something else? Everything comes back to knowledge today. And that's why all the most advanced societies, all the biggest corporations in the world, they're focused on transforming themselves into knowledge corporations, information corporations, white collar, uh, information societies, knowledge societies. Countries like Indonesia and Malaysia and others are, have invested and many of them have been able to transition to a very large extent into knowledge societies. They've changed their entire educational systems, their entire economic systems so that they move towards becoming knowledge societies. So if we understand all of this, we go back to the same question. If today this is a world of knowledge and information, what does it mean for us to live in this world, in these knowledge societies, as Muslims? What does Islam have to say about knowledge? Does Islam agree with this or not? Does it give this kind of importance to knowledge does it say that knowledge has this type of power or not? And can we go that far or, you know, and these are the big questions that inshallah we want to start thinking about and addressing today. When you look at the complexity of this world, let's looking at it from this first theme of knowledge. It looks like it's very novel, very new to humanity to deal with these themes. Does religion in general and Islam specifically, does it still have anything relevant to say in today's world? And that's why we have all these divergent different opinions, some of them more extreme, saying simply, there is nothing left for religions to contribute to humanity based on where they are today. And you have more moderate positions that say, there is still something that humanity can be benefiting from, from religions, or from Islam specifically, because we have Islamic thinkers writing this too, but only in matters related to spirituality and our relationship with God, for instance. 
or perhaps some social interactions. But it's not the lifestyle and it's not the worldview that we used to think it was, in that it allows you to see everything through it. And it has an answer and it has an opinion and it has a position about everything going on in the world. Okay? So inshallah with today, we want to begin, and inshallah these are the questions you keep in mind as we go through this first lecture, where inshallah we're going to dedicate this lecture to understanding the value and importance of knowledge in Islam. But please, once again, keep in mind the setting that we laid out for this entire series and for this specific theme, the theme of knowledge. Keep in mind that, as we said, we are in knowledge societies or moving towards them. Now we want to see what does Islam have to say, and so this is what we keep for the discussion part and your homework and your thinking and reflection, to see does Islam still have anything of benefit to say for these types of questions or not. Okay, so let us begin with, I'm going to keep the verses of the Holy Quran until the end, because they're very rich and they require a lot of discussion, and I think once we go through the hadith, a lot of the points in the verses might become clearer, or we may leave them to the next lecture and if we run out of time. So the first of these narrations that we want to look at, inshallah, we're going to go through a large number of them. So stay with me. I read them in, in Arabic and I translate as we go. If you have questions, let me know if something is not clear. In the first narration from the Holy Prophet, وآله, we are told that the Holy Prophet, خَرَجَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ so the Holy Prophet went to the Holy Mosque, the mosque, the mosque of Al-Medina, and he found two groups, two gatherings in the mosque. One gathering, one group is sitting together learning the matters of religion, deeper matters of religion, and the other group worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and praying to him. He saw both, and he said both of these gatherings are good. Both of these gatherings are virtuous. These people are worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Of course they are good. And as for this group, they are teaching and they are giving knowledge to those who do not have knowledge to those who don't have this type of religious education. Ha'ula'i, this second group, where there is teaching and knowledge happening, Ha'ula'i afdal. These people are better. This gathering is better than the gathering of those who are worshipping. Both are good, both are virtuous, both are good deeds, but this one is better than the other one. Because this one, there is an education, religious education happening, the other one, there is worship happening. And then, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent me, He sent me with a mission to teach. This is my mission. This is a prophetic mission to teach and to learn. And then He sat with them. So the Holy Prophet chose one group over another. So very quickly, I'm not going to be going through a full commentary. Each one of these could easily become its own lecture. Okay, very quickly I'm going to try to highlight some of the conclusions we need from these. Already here, a first conclusion is that we see that in our religion, knowledge is better and more important than worship. As good as worship is, as good as supplication and prayers are, knowledge is better. 
Okay? We haven't defined knowledge yet. We're going to come back to that. The types of knowledge, the sources of knowledge, what constitutes Islamic knowledge. We'll come back to all of that. Right now, we're just placing, reserving, holding a space for it and establishing the general conclusions, the general principles we need to live our lives. Conclusion one, knowledge is better than worship in Islam. Might be surprising, but this is, these are the words and the actions of the Holy Prophet. The second conclusion, knowledge, the Holy Prophet says, is one of the purposes of prophethood and his specific prophethood. So prophethood in general, and this is inshallah going to be a theme after knowledge. We're going to dedicate a very quick theme inshallah. What are the purposes of religion? Why does God send religion to humanity in the first place? Before we go any further to see why is, what is the intent behind religion and can it actually fulfill that intent and help humanity with those matters. So these two things keep in, keep in mind. Inshallah at the end of the lecture we'll conclude by listing all of these as a refresher and we'll inshallah keep building on them lecture after lecture, all of these findings. The second hadith we have is from Imam Ali alayhi salam in which he says, Ya Kumail, ma min harakatin illa wa anta muhtajun fiha ila ma'rifa. There is no action you can take. There is no step you can have, you can walk in this world unless it is based on knowledge. So this in itself becomes a conclusion. It becomes a principle. It may go without saying, but here, keep in mind what we were saying. We're going to break this down further in the next narrations. Nabi Al-Ansar are the people who are living in the city of Medina, right? Not Mecca. They're not the ones who migrated with the Holy Prophet from Mecca. Al-Ansar were the people living in the city of Medina. So we are already past the halfway mark, the midpoint mark of the prophetic mission. فَقَالَ يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ إِذَا حَضَرَتْ جَنَازَةٌ أَوْ حَضَرَ مَجْلِسُ عَالِمٍ There is, he tells the Holy Prophet, there are two gatherings happening at the same time. One of them is a funeral procession. And the other one is a gathering around a scholar, around knowledge. So obviously, the reason why I say this is way past the beginning point of Islam, this person knows and may have heard, of course, that there is a great reward for both of these. He's trying to choose between them. He probably went through something like this because it happened or it's happening or something like it might happen. And of course, we're not going to go into all of the details here, but the importance that Islam gives to a funeral procession and everything around it. You know, in Islam, there is wajib aini and wajib kifai. Wajib aini means something that is obligatory or incumbent on, upon every individual, every Muslim. If it's wajib kifai, it means that if some of them, if one of them or some of them perform the action, it is no longer obligatory on the others. If someone enters this hall and they say, Salamun Alaikum, it's obligatory that someone answers them. If no one answers, then we have all sinned. If one person answers, they get the reward for all of us because they took on the initiative and they took care of that responsibility for everyone. Okay, so this is how some of these rites work. If a Muslim dies, it's incumbent upon all Muslims to perform the rites of death, the rituals of death for that person. They do the ghusl, the ablutions, the, the washing, the ritual washing, the prayer, the tahniyat, the takfin, and the burial. Right? 
If someone does it, then there's no need for others to do it. If no one does it, then everyone is considered to have lacked, failed their duties towards that person. And beyond that, Islam gives great reward for walking in a procession or attending a fatiha, for instance, a funeral after someone has passed, uh, passed on. And the reason is that you create, you console the people who need it when they've lost a loved one. You create these social ties. So there's a great reward beyond the obligation. So this person is asking a very good question. He says, Which ones of these two, the gathering for the funeral procession or the gathering for the knowledge, the acquisition of knowledge around the scholar, which one do you prefer that I attend? فقال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وآله إذا كان للجنازة من يتبعها ويدفنها If there is for the funeral someone who is walking in the procession and someone who will take care of the burial rites فإن حضور مجلس العالم The attendance of the gathering where that scholar is أفضل من حضور ألف جنازة It is better than attending 1,000 funeral processions. We're going to come back to these numbers. The Holy Prophet continues, وَمِنْ عِيَادَةِ أَلْفِ مَرِيضِ The question was about between a funeral procession and a gathering around a scholar to learn religion. So the Holy Prophet says it's better than 1,000 funeral processions and visiting 1,000 times someone who is ill or who is sick. And once again, we're not going to go through the Everything that Islam says about the importance of visiting those who are sick. So staying up in worship for 1,000 nights. What more? And to pray and to fast 1,000 days. Of course, this is not the obligatory fast of Shah Ramadan. And from 1,000 dirham that are given in charity for those who are poor, who need it. وَمِنْ أَلْفِ حَجَّةٍ سِوَى And performing the mustahab, hajj, the umrah, 1,000 times. And what else? وَمِنْ أَلْفِ غَزْوَةٍ سِوَى الْوَاجِبِ تَغْزُوهَا فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ بِمَالِكَ وَنَفْسِكَ And for 1,000 times that you sacrifice and struggle with all of your wealth and yourself in the way of God. 1,000 times. وَأَيْنَ تَقَعُ هَذِهِ الْمَشَاهِدُ مِنْ مَشْهَدِ عَالِمٍ and where and how can you compare any of these matters or elements with that of being in the presence of a scholar? So the Holy Prophet is saying it's more. So the number that the Holy Prophet is saying when he says 1,000 may be just to say that you can't fathom how much more it is. And of course, this if you keep in mind everything we said about the nature of this world and the nature of the afterlife, you understand why some, some numbers may not make sense to us in this world, but they make a lot of sense if you keep in mind that this is an eternal existence in the afterlife and the nature of reward and punishment and all of that. But even if you put that aside, let's just look at it in terms of value and importance. This is the importance that Islam is giving and the Holy Prophet is giving to knowledge over what we can consider to be the pillars of our religion. These are the most important actions and uh, rituals and acts of worship in Islam. He mentioned prayer and fasting and zakat, charity, hajj. What else is left? And the Holy Prophet is saying you can't even compare. 
When he says, You can't even compare them. And so the Holy Prophet explains why. Do you not know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is obeyed through knowledge? Your obedience to God has to go through knowledge. And the worship of God has to go through knowledge. And this is why knowledge is so important. If you want anything that is good in this world, and you want anything that is good in the next world, it has to go through knowledge. And all that is evil, and all that is bad in this world and the next is associated with or comes from ignorance or the lack of knowledge. A couple of points here before I move to the to the next hadith. Of course, here we're not going to talk about when the Holy Prophet says alim. We're assuming that this person is a true alim and carrying the true knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his religion. Quick note about that. Conclusions. So not only is knowledge better here, not only is it better and more important, the first conclusion is it is the only manner in which God can be worshipped. It is the only manner in which God can be known, therefore worshipped and obeyed, as the Holy Prophet says. So, يُطَاعُ بِالْعِلْمِ يُعْبَدُ بِالْعِلْمِ That's one. Two, if you want anything, here's a, a nuance or, or a, a delicate point. You want anything that is good in this world and the next. So we're starting to see a hadith, inshallah we're going to dedicate a whole theme to that. But already from this hadith we can see that Islam wants people to gain the benefits and the happiness and the good of this world through knowledge. But it already says, go get it through knowledge, but go get it. There is nothing in our religion that says, don't go after the happiness and the good and the benefits and the luxuries and the comforts of this world. Otherwise, the Holy Prophet would have said, don't you know that everything that is good in the afterlife is acquired through knowledge? No, he said about this world and the next is acquired through knowledge. Okay, that's second point. The third point is that the only alternative to knowledge is jahl. The only alternative is ignorance. And inshallah, we're going to come back and dedicate a part, a lecture on what Islam says about the alternative. Okay? The next hadith. Imam Ali alayhi salam says, لا تخبر بما لم تحط به علما. Do not speak about that which you have not a full understanding. And to me, there's a nuance here. Imam Ali alayhi salam is not saying, don't talk about that which you do not know. تحط به علما is different than تعلم. There is a lot more knowledge when you have an ihaba, when you have a comprehension, when you understand fully something. And here the conclusion we can take is that be cautious before you open your mouth and start talking about something. Make sure that you have acquired enough knowledge about it. You have fully prepared that topic or keep your mouth shut. Don't talk about it. This is an important matter. You may cause more problems and more issues and more trouble by talking about something that you only understand halfway, then just keeping your mouth shut and not opening your mouth and talking about it without knowing. Okay? Next hadith. 
Imam Ali alayhi salam again says, Alaykum bidirayati la birruayat. Go after those things which are well known or factual or facts. Diraya, something that has actually happened and you have certainty about it as opposed to those things that are hearsay and rumors and reports. It may be and it may not be. Go after the things that are factual. And here, so this can become a conclusion on its own. In addition to that, this goes both ways. This goes, especially if we combine it with the previous hadith where the imam is saying, don't talk. This goes to the person who is giving as well as the person who is receiving. If you are giving, make sure that you're giving accurate, factual, true and complete information or don't give because you're not sure. And if you are receiving, make sure that you're not wasting your time receiving things that are non-factual, reports and opinions and rumors and hearsay and so on and so forth. Be selective and go after those things which are well-known and factual. Next hadith from Imam Ali Al-ilmu aslu kulli khair. Very short and sweet and comprehensive. Okay, so we're going through a breakdown of all of these, but this I thought would become a, a principle on its own. Al-ilmu aslu kulli khair. Knowledge is the foundation or the basis of anything and everything that is good. Again from Imam Ali alayhi salam, لا تستعظمن أحدا Do not consider someone great حتى تستكشف معرفته Don't grant your feelings of honor and greatness towards someone. Don't give it to them until you are sure of their level of knowledge. And this is an important thing on, in my mind on two fronts here. The first one, Imam Ali السلام, is basically telling us, and we're going to come to those and see that explicitly in some narrations. Our worth in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is based on our knowledge. Our true knowledge, our Islamic knowledge, which we will explain later. So Imam Ali السلام, may be talking about this. He is saying... You should only give someone the greatness that they deserve and they only deserve it based on their knowledge. How much do they know? This is your merit and value as a human being. This is your worth as a human being in the eyes of Imam Ali السلام, in the eyes of Islam. The question to me here is, and this should also be the value that we give to each other and to human beings in general. This should be the criteria. And I think a lot of people know this in their gut and intuitively. But do we actually live our lives this way? When we give greatness to someone, when we recognize someone's greatness, is it based on what they know? The truth that they carry? Or is it based on something else? Their reputation and their wealth and their popularity and so on and so forth. And this becomes a very important discussion, inshallah, we keep all of these in mind, inshallah, we have a chance to come back to them. For instance, if we're talking about role models, before I start choosing someone to follow while I'm aware or not, one thing that I should definitely look at is what type of knowledge does this person carry and how is it going to influence me? Okay. 
Next hadith from Imam Sadiq alayhi salam. He reports this hadith from his father, Imam al-Baqir alayhi salam, who tells him, who tells Imam al-Sadiq, Ya Bunay, i'rif manazil al-shi'ati ala qadri riwayatihim wa ma'rifatihim. Recognize the ranks of the followers of Ahl al-Bayt alayhi salam based on their level of knowledge and understanding of the sciences of Ahl al-Bayt, of the sayings of Ahl al-Bayt. True knowledge is how much they understand, how deeply they understand the teachings or the sayings of Ahl al-Bayt It is through this deep understanding of the teachings of Ahl al-Bayt, the sayings of Ahl al-Bayt, that a mu'min, that a follower of Ahl al-Bayt can reach the highest levels of felicity, the highest levels of faith, of belief. Inni nadartu fi kitabin salam. I have looked in one of the writings or letters or books of Imam Ali alayhi salam. So I found in it, fawajadtu fil kitab, inna qimata kullimri'in wa qadrahu, the value and worth of every human being is their knowledge, ma'rifatu. The value of a human being is how much they know. Inna Allah tabaraka wa ta'ala. Here's another explanation. We saw the explanation of the Holy Prophet. Imam Ali alayhi salam says, Inna Allah tabaraka wa ta'ala yuhasibu al-nasa ala qadri ma atahum min al-uquli fi dar al-dunya. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, will judge people in the afterlife based on how much intellect, and inshallah we're going to, Break this intellect in two parts. The first one we're talking about today, knowledge. The second one is reason, rationality. We're going to talk about it next time. Based on how much we got from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, how much He has granted each one of us, this is going to be the main criteria based on which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will judge us. Everything else follows the level of knowledge and how you were able to understand it and use it. Okay? So again, I think the... Conclusions from this one should be clear. First of all, our judgment by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is based on our knowledge and our understanding, our rational ability. And secondly, clearly Islam recognizes that not everybody has access to the same knowledge or to the same intellectual abilities and to the same level of understanding. Park this for now. We're going to come back to it. Very important. Next hadith. Imam Sadiq salam says, the Holy Prophet says, The most knowledgeable of people is the one who gathers the knowledge of others to his own knowledge, who combines the knowledge of others to his own knowledge. And the one who has most merit, most value, is the person who carries most knowledge. And the one who is, who has the least worth, the least merit, the least value, is the one who carries the least amount of knowledge. So here, I think a conclusion could easily be, clearly be, that we cannot be happy and satisfied and contented with the knowledge that we have, whatever it may be. The Holy Prophet is saying, Go and seek out the knowledge of others. Assess it. If it is true knowledge, you have to go get it. That is 
the most knowledgeable, the one who combines the knowledge of others to his knowledge. And so this can work at the level of an individual, but it can work at the levels of a community, it could work at the level of a society, of an ummah. We are not allowed to be happy saying, I have a lot of knowledge and the knowledge I have is good and I don't need to look at what anyone else has. This is rejected clearly in our teachings. Okay. Next narration we have from the Holy Prophet very well known, the Holy Prophet says, The seeking of knowledge is incumbent upon every Muslim man and woman. So this is very clearly stated that there is an obligation. When the Holy Prophet uses the word faridah, fard in fiqh has a very technical meaning. It's no different than prayer, no different than fasting, the obligatory prayer, the obligatory fasting. The Holy Prophet uses the same term here. This is not a luxury. This is not a bonus. This is not, you know, extra gravy. Something additional and preferable that you get to do if you choose to. If you are saying, I'm fully a Muslim and I want to live fully as a Muslim, then there has to be a part of your lifestyle and living dedicated to knowledge. To giving it, acquiring it, getting it one way or another. You have to be involved in knowledge. The seeking of knowledge is obligatory, the Holy Prophet says, upon everyone. The second point here is for those who say that Islam says it's better for girls or women not to be taught, not to learn, so on and so forth. There might be other reasons we can talk about, but Islamically speaking, the incumbency or the obligation, the Holy Prophet says, is no different. Men and women in Islam have an obligation to learn and therefore to be taught. Okay? So inshallah that puts that whole misconception aside. So let's look for those reasons when it's not happening and people claim that, let's look elsewhere. It's not Islam. There's something else going on. Another narration from the Holy Prophet. Beginning the same. This time it's more general. Everyone who is a Muslim. If you are a Muslim, Seeking knowledge is incumbent, obligatory. For Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves those who seek knowledge. So here, there is a spiritual dimension that we're adding. You want to be loved by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, regardless of anything else. We had other narrations that talked about the good of this world, the good of the next world. This is for you. But if you want God to love you, this is a different relationship. This is something different. It's highly spiritual to be of those people who want to love God and who want to be loved by God. The Holy Prophet says one easy way to be in that category is to be a seeker of knowledge. Next hadith, Imam Sadiq salam says, If you are of the followers of Imam Sadiq We talked about Imam Sadiq last week. Imam Sadiq says, ask or seek knowledge, even if you have to ride the depths and the tumultuous waves of the oceans, the dark oceans, al-lujaj, is dark, deep, scary water. That's al-lujaj. 
Imam Sadiq says, اطلبوا العلم ولو بخوض اللجج وشق المهج What is شق المهج? What's the muhja? The muhja, literally, it's the blood inside the heart. That's the muhja. It's dark blood inside the heart. So the Arabs use that term, muhja, to refer to the soul or to the self. When they say someone has given up their self, they sacrifice themselves. Or they are willing to sacrifice themselves for someone. Usually this is the term used, al-muhja. You're willing to give up that which is the most defining of your life, what keeps you alive. The, the, the blood inside the heart. Imam Sadiq salam says, Seek knowledge. So he is giving an order to his followers. Seek knowledge even if you have to ride the depths of the oceans. And you have to sacrifice the blood of the heart. In other words, the Imam is saying, regardless of the difficulty, regardless of the cost, regardless of, regardless of, it may not be easy, it may be costly, there might be sacrifices, you have an obligation, if you are one of my followers, Imam Sadiq says, or if you are a true Muslim, to seek knowledge. Okay. So, difficulty, dangerous, great cost, you still have to seek knowledge. That's the conclusion. Next hadith, Imam al-Baqir he says, from the Holy Prophet Ughdu. He is giving us the alternatives. Imam al-Baqir says the Holy Prophet gave us the options we have, the alternatives we have. What are they? Ughdu aliman aw muta'alliman Be one of either someone who has knowledge, you are a alim. Someone seeking knowledge, you are a muta'allim. وَإِيَّاكَ Therefore there is no alternative. You must either be someone who has the knowledge, or someone who is seeking the knowledge, or you fall in the other category, which is, we referred to it earlier, jahl. There is nothing else. Here we have a breakdown of the types of jahl. The Holy Prophet says, وَإِيَّاكَ أَن تَكُونَ لَاهِيًا مُتَلَذِّبًا Be someone who has knowledge, someone who is seeking knowledge and beware of being of those who are only seeking their amusement or diversion or play and their own desires and pleasures. Don't be in that category. Do you see the alternatives? Do you see the, the lifestyle choices that the Holy Prophet is describing and how Islam views the place of knowledge and what it does to your outlook on life? Next hadith. I'm going to come back maybe to that one. It's a longer hadith and I, I didn't want to spend too much time. This hadith, we have it, and I have it in two sources. In one of them, it's reported from Imam Ali salam, and another one, it's reported from the Holy Prophet So let me narrate it from the Holy Prophet as in Tuhaf al-Uqul if anyone wants to go back. The Holy Prophet says, Learn knowledge. For seeking it and learning it is a hasana, is something virtuous and good in itself. Studying it is a glorification of God. When you are studying knowledge, you are in a state of glorifying God. And when you are seeking knowledge, you are in a state of struggling in the way of God. If you teach it to someone who doesn't know it, this is an act of charity. 
If you give it to someone who is worthy of getting that knowledge, this is an act of getting closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then the Holy Prophet continues. And so here, of course, there's a responsibility. A conclusion here that we add to our conclusions is that there is a responsibility to teach. The Holy Prophet referred to that. لِأَنَّهُ مَعَالِمُ الْحَلَالِ وَالْحَرَامِ So why, why does knowledge have all of this merit and this importance? لِأَنَّهُ مَعَالِمُ الْحَلَالِ وَالْحَرَامِ It is signposts telling us what is forbidden and what is obligatory. وَسَالِكٌ بِطَالِبِهِ سُبُلًا نَجَاتِ It is leading the one seeking it to the paths or to the ways of paradise. وَمُؤْنِسٌ فِي الْوَحْدَةِ وَصَاحِبٌ فِي الْغُرْبَةِ it is the one who entertains or who consoles when you are lonely. And it is the one who becomes your companion when you are a foreigner or estranged. And then the Holy Prophet continues, And it is a guidance or a guide to felicity or to happiness. He's not saying in this world or the next. In general, you want happiness, it goes through knowledge. Once again, refer to the comments we said about happiness in this world and what Islam says about it. Now I hope that the, the links are clear with what we were saying before. When we're saying when societies today are using knowledge as a weapon, the weaponization of knowledge, it's a huge topic with books written on it now. Okay, the Holy Prophet is saying knowledge is in itself a weapon against enemies can be used if you know how, if you have it and you know how, knowledge is a weapon against enemies. And a beauty to those who are friends. So he doesn't say more than that, but most likely of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the friends of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala raises or elevates some groups of people with knowledge. And so he makes them leaders in virtue and goodness so that people can look up to them and follow them. Turmaq is when you look at something with envy or with admiration. Or So when he says uh, it means everyone's attentions, everyone's eyes are drawn to those people that Allah has bestowed knowledge upon. All eyes are on them. What's the qabas? Qabas is when there's a big fire and you go take a piece of it. Everyone wants to be attributed to those people and to say, I have a piece of their knowledge, a piece of their athar, of the traces they leave behind, of their projects, of their work. I was involved with them. Okay? وَتَرْغَبُ الْمَلَائِكَةُ فِي خِلَّتِهِمْ and the angels want to befriend these people. Why? Because knowledge is the life of the hearts and the light of the eyes and a protection from blindness. And it is a strength protecting bodies, our bodies, from weakness. And so this part we saw earlier. It is through knowledge that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is worshipped. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is obeyed. And it is through knowledge that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is known and considered one. 
وبه توصل الأرحام ويعرف الحلال والحرام والعلم إمام العقل This is an important point There's a reason why I'm presenting knowledge before reason والعلم إمام العقل Knowledge is the imam of aql, comes before aql, comes before reason. There are people, unfortunately, who give more importance to reason than knowledge. And then they start falling in doubts. And they want to use their critical mind without having the knowledge. And so when the knowledge comes, they don't look at the knowledge. They don't have substance to, to work with. They don't have any foundations. They haven't received the instructions and the teachings. They only have a mind. They only have reason. And so when you apply reason blindly to nothing, and there is no foundation of knowledge before, it can lead you in all sorts of directions, such as doubting everything, and questioning everything, and refusing everything, with the excuse that this is based on reason, and you are being logical, and you, have, you are using a critical mind. It's because you haven't taken the time to learn first. If someone says, Someone says, Islam has very interesting things to say about knowledge. And someone who doesn't know what Islam has to say, they say, I don't think so. And so there's a whole debate that may happen. This is an empty debate. It doesn't lead to anything. This person who has no knowledge at all about what Islam says about something, I don't know what they can, for instance, the hadith that we're going through, which is nothing, which is not even the tip of the iceberg, if you know how much there is in, in our religion and in our tradition about knowledge, for instance. We've looked at maybe 10, 15 hadith today. There are hundreds, if not thousands of them. And someone says, I don't think Islam has anything to contribute to this very advanced novel topic. This is where you see you hit a roadblock here. You fall into a type of arrogance, and inshallah we're going to come to the obstacles and barriers of knowledge. And one of them is arrogance, is that you refuse to learn. You will not have the modesty to recognize that you can learn something. And, and inshallah we're going to go. This is a long hadith, it continues. Then the Holy Prophet starts enumerating the ten traits of those who have aql. So inshallah when we talk about aql, we'll come back to this hadith. And then, allow me maybe to finish with this hadith and we'll stop here. A hadith from Imam al-Sadiq in which he says, لَسْتُ أُحِبُّ أَنْ أَرَى الشَّابَّ مِنْكُمْ I do not like to see any youth among you. He's talking to his followers, Imam al-Sadiq I do not want to see, I do not like to see any youth among you. إِلَّا غَادِيًا فِي حَالَيْنِ I want to see him in one of two states. No third to them. If you are a follower of Imam Sadiq this is what he wants to see. Aliman or Muta'allima. First one is you are a scholar, you are carrying the knowledge. And so here the Imam is specifically talking about Shabab. He is specifically saying Shab. So that we remove the preconceived notion in our mind that a scholar can only become a scholar once they have a big white beard and they're seven years old. The Imam is talking about Shabab. And he says, I want to see the Shabab in two states. Either you are a carrier of knowledge or you are a seeker of knowledge. 
time for us to review ourselves and our lives. Do we fall in those categories? And if not, what do we need to do? فَإِن لَمْ يَفْعَلْ فَرَّطْ So why, why, Ibn Rasulullah, do you say you want us to see, you want to see all of our shabab in one of these two states? Why is it that we can only, our two alternatives are only to be either someone who has knowledge or someone who is seeking knowledge? If he is not, the Imam says, if he's not falling in one of these two states, فَرَّطْ So what's فَرَّطْ? It's someone who is careless, who lacks judgment so that they do too much of something or too little of something. That's what it means. This is the beginning of it. The Imam is going to continue. So someone who is remiss, someone who misuses what they have, someone who is lacking judgment. فَإِن لَمْ يَفْعَلْ فَرَّطْ فَإِن فَرَّطَ ضَيَّعْ The Imam says, if he's in that first state, then the next one is, he starts failing. He starts lacking towards his duties. ضَيَّعْ So what happens إِذَا ضَيَّعْ What's the problem with failing and lacking towards your duties? Becoming wasteful, becoming neglectful. فَإِنْ ضَيَّعَ أَثِنْ So when you fail towards these duties, you start falling into sin. فَإِنْ أَثِمَ وَإِنْ أَثِمَ سَكَنَ النَّارِ That's it. Now he has become an inhabitant of hellfire. And so this is the concern of Imam al-Sadiq. He says, I don't want to see the shabab, our shabab, except in two states, seeking knowledge or having knowledge. Otherwise, you are in a slippery slope that will only lead to being an inhabitant of hellfire. And then the Imam ends with making the warning a lot more explicit. I think he says, I swear by the one who sent Muhammad in truth that this is the case. So in case anyone doubts or thinks the Imam is exaggerating or maybe being metaphorical, no, the Imam is making it very clear, very explicit. These are rules or laws of, of nature, of society, of human beings. This is how it works. The Imam is making it very clear. So, and of course here there's a whole thing we can spend time on, especially if we want to link it to the discussion we had, the presentation we had on, or the lecture we had on Imam Sadiq alayhi salam. And we said the importance he gave to knowledge. As soon as there was an opportunity to act in his time, we said there was political turmoil in his time. The Imam seized that instability to do what? To spread knowledge. To make sure he cultivated that. He cared for people and made them into specialists and knowledgeable people. Many of his companions became some of the greatest scholars of Islam. And he's the one who basically re-established and re-infused life into our religion. Because up to that point, up to the point of Imam al-Baqar specifically, then Imam al-Baqar began to turn the, the, the entire situation around. There was no hadith, there was no authentic hadith left. And so here, the, this is why the Imam is talking about this. You have to keep that context in mind. And keep in mind how when the Imam could seize the opportunity and do something, how he focused and prioritized knowledge. Everything else comes out of it. Start with knowledge. The second point is, of course, here, you saw that it began with knowledge, but there's a link. And these are all different dimensions we're trying to cover throughout the, these different hadith. And this one, the link between knowledge and the religious or spiritual dimension. So here in the end, this person is ending in hellfire. 
Okay, so clearly the Imam is looking at the dimension of knowledge that is leading to virtue and sin, for instance. There are other hadith that we looked at that had an ethical dimension. Knowledge is not willy-nilly. There, is, there are criteria that if they are met, we are talking about Islamic knowledge. What makes knowledge Islamic? Is it only about the afterlife and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, or is there more? Inshallah, we're going to get into the details. But inshallah, with what we saw today, when the Holy Prophet says, for instance, and knowledge is a strengthening of the body and protection of the bodies against weakness. Would you not say that there's most likely here an indication that he's not talking about the afterlife? There might be a spiritual dimension or spiritual interpretation to this, but there is most clearly a physical one too, which means that you have to understand how the bodies work and how what you need to do so that that body is strong, right? And so on and so forth. We talked about how the Holy Prophet says, for instance, that it can be used as a weapon, how knowledge can be giving you the social status and the social power. They call it the symbolic power, right? When he says these are the people that everybody looks up to. Everybody wants to be associated with them. Why? Because they have knowledge. Okay? So, with all of this said, I'm looking at the time. So allow me to very quickly bring all of the conclusions that we heard together today. Okay? Just listing them quickly one by one so that you have them fresh in your mind. The first conclusion is that, and these inshallah, you keep them in mind and we build on them as we said, they become the principles. We claimed at the beginning of the series we're going to give principles. Let's see some of these principles. The first one, conclusion is uh, knowledge is better than worship and is more important than worship. A second one. One purpose of sending prophethood is to teach. Third, knowledge is necessary for action. You cannot act if you do not know. Conclusion four, not only is knowledge better and more important than worship, it is the only manner in which you can worship God and obey God. There is no worship without knowledge and there is no obedience to God without knowledge if you want anything good in this world important and the next world it is only possible through knowledge the sixth conclusion the only alternative to knowledge is jah and as we said we're going to explain this in more detail in the lecture we will dedicate to jah only and of course, in the hadith, and jahl is equal to evil. It was every shar, right? Every evil, every harm in this world and the next is uh, jahl. Only speak about that which you really know and the importance of preparing before you talk. So make sure you have real knowledge. Conclusion eight, relying on facts, not on rumors, not on hearsay, not on doubtful reports. Imam Ali salam says, rely on facts in both the giving and receiving. Conclusion nine, the merit of a human being and the merit of a Muslim and the merit of a follower of Ahlul Bayt no matter what you look at, the merit of a human being is based on the amount of knowledge that they have. We will come back to qualify and define this knowledge later. But for, time, for now, the amount of knowledge defines your worth and your value before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
The conclu 10th conclusion, our judgment in the afterlife is based on our level of knowledge and our understanding and our intellectual ability. People have different intellectual abilities, different faculties. So the judgment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, because he recognizes this, means that it's equitable. It's fair to everyone because it's based on what they understand, how much they know, and how much intellect, intellectual power they've been given. Okay? The twelfth conclusion was that we cannot be content with our own knowledge. So we said this can work at the level of an individual. It could look at the, uh, we can look at it at the level of an ummah. Okay? Seek the knowledge of others and the importance of modesty. The thirteenth conclusion, seeking of knowledge is incumbent upon every Muslim, man and woman. The fourteenth conclusion, there is a spiritual growth just for seeking knowledge. Before you even acquire the knowledge, if you want to get that knowledge, that makes you grow spiritually and you follow the categories of those that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves. The fifteenth, seeking knowledge is obligatory. Even if, and inshallah this is a topic we will come back to, we will see how Islam, we're going to talk about a lot of teachings of Islam. We're going to see how Islam says, you should avoid things that are difficult for you, and that make life difficult and stressful and dangerous and costly. Takalluf. Islam is against takalluf. Things that really push you out of your way. It wants things to run smoothly in a natural way. Simplicity. But there are exceptions. There are issues and things where Islam says, no, here, here it's not about making your life simple and easy and happy and comfortable. Here I want to see you dedicated and to sacrifice and to push because your entire value depends on this. This is not about the rest of life. This is about the core. This is why you are created. Inshallah, we're going to come back to that. Therefore, in these things, you can push and you can sacrifice. So it's okay that it's a little dangerous, and it's okay that it's a little costly, and it's okay that it's a little difficult. Push. So seeking knowledge falls in this category. That's how important it is. The next point, alternatives are either that you are someone who has knowledge, or you are someone seeking knowledge, or someone who is seeking lust and pleasures and desires of this life and entertainment and diversion and play. There's nothing else or all of that combined under the term of jahl. Conclusion 17 is that there is a responsibility that it has attached to knowledge. Until now, we've only really seen teaching. There's more that will come. Conclusion 18. Knowledge provides social status. Knowledge provides social capital, or what they call in sociology, symbolic capital. It gives you social power. And of course, as soon as you say something gives you power in society, it means you have to talk about the ethics of it. How is this supposed to be managed and how is it supposed to be done in an ethical way? This is something to always keep in mind. So there is an ethics of knowledge because there is a responsibility that comes with it. We'll come back to that. Conclusion 19. Knowledge is intended for its benefits in this world and the next. Conclusion 20. Benefits of knowledge in this world include, these are the ones we saw, securing happiness, mental health, 
So if you look at things like loneliness and estrangement and other things, physical health, we saw examples of that, social power, and protection against enemies. All of these are directly, explicitly mentioned in these narrations. Knowledge comes first, reason is applied to knowledge. This was the last conclusion we had. So, for the discussion that I leave you with, the first is, there's clearly, as we said, an ethics of knowledge. So whether we apply it to the things we heard, or whether we apply it to society today, what does that mean when we say there has to be an ethics of knowledge? Okay, and inshallah we will touch on these later. But this is something to keep in mind, a first question. Because we talked about what is being done with knowledge today. The second is that when we read the instructions of the Holy Prophet or Imam Ali or Imam Sadiq and the importance that they give to knowledge, can we safely say that this is the place that we are giving to knowledge in our lives? Can we safely say, I'm giving enough place, enough room for seeking, for acquiring, for spreading knowledge that makes me fall in the categories that the Imams talked about or there is work to be done. And this works at a level of an individual. So I have to think about it for myself. But it also works at the level of a community. And it also works at the level of society. And it also works at the level of humanity. Okay? But of course, we always start from within. Don't jump into trying to change the world if you still need to work on yourself. Okay? You have to be ready. Even the narrations of Imam Ali alayhi salam, we're talking about that, and inshallah we'll explain all of this in detail. Another question. When people say, or people wonder, or ask nowadays, are faith and knowledge, faith and reason, are they compatible or not? In general, religion and knowledge. Are they compatible? Can you be both? Is one over the other? Can you have, can you be someone who applies reason and rationality and still consider yourself religious and specifically Islam? Does Islam still have anything relevant to say in today's knowledge society and today's information society? Based on the little that we saw today, does Islam have anything relevant to say about living in a world that is dominated or that is moving towards being entirely dominated by knowledge and information and data and what happens around them and their management? Okay, so that's the lecture part. And inshallah, we'll continue with some Quranic verses and then we'll move into rationality and the place of reason in Islam. So inshallah, with this, we touched on a few sensitive, important, relevant chords. Uh, but I, I don't want you to be limited in anything you say or ask to, to what we just, the, the few points that we raised for a discussion. But I'm really curious to hear what you have to say. Sayyidna, uh, you mentioned that uh, the merit of human being is based on the amount of knowledge that one has, mm -hmm. or that the human being has. In the 
القرآن says بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن خلقناكم من ذكر وأنثى وجعلناكم شعوبا وقبائل لتعارفوا إن أكرمكم عند الله أتقاكم Where is the uh, place of taqwa of God consciousness piety whichever you want to translate it into uh, compared to knowledge in the statement that you have, that you have said so the, the more detailed answer, the question is, when we look at the Holy Qur'an, we have a verse, for instance, in Surah Al-Hujarat, The most honorable among you in the eyes of Allah or before Allah is the one who, is, who has most piety or the most pious, most God-fearing. So how can we claim or how can we say that the merit of a human being, and we didn't say it's the hadith that said, your worth, your merit, your value as a human being is based on the amount of knowledge you have. So we're going to give a very short answer now and inshallah the more detailed answer is going to come because we haven't looked at the verses of the Qur'an yet. The very short answer is that or I'm going to give a very short and a medium answer. The very short answer is that taqwa falls under knowledge. Taqwa does not happen in a vacuum. You have to have a certain amount of knowledge to be fearful or conscious of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What does it mean to be muttaqi? Okay, so your taqwa is based on, do you have knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Do you have knowledge of, it depends how you look at taqwa. Taqwa is, is I'm not going to say impossible to translate in one word. We usually say piety, but it's more than that. I've, in the past, I've translated it as uh, uh, God, uh, an awareness of God, and uh, a mindfulness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You're mindful that Allah is there. And so it doesn't stop at just fearing Allah, revering Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because you understand what He is, what type of God He is. You understand His teachings and instructions so you know His boundaries and you don't trespass them. You pretend, you protect yourself, you prevent yourself from falling into sin, right? There's ittiqa, there's waqaya, there's an immunity that you don't go close to the sin so that you're not exposed to it, right? You make sure that there's a prevention that happens before you get there. All of this is included in the notion of taqwa. Where does it come from? How can you be in that state? First, you have to have the knowledge so that you can act based on this. You can be in that state. That's one. The second point, that's, the slight, that's a very short answer. The slightly longer answer, and inshallah this will come, is that we are going to talk about the relationship between knowledge and taqwa or knowledge and spirituality or knowledge and religiousness we're going to keep that until the end or at least later in the in this uh, in these lectures okay and inshallah it will address this point in more in a more direct way and the longer answer is we have to go through the verses of the holy quran to see is there a hierarchy because we have a few verses that seem to be talking about different things. So are these contradicting each other? If you have a verse that says, I have not created human beings and jinn or jinn and human beings, except that they worship me for worship. We have a verse that this one says, your honor is based on your level of taqwa, your piety. We have another verse that says, certainty, or some people have said, you know, that means death. Okay, but really it's certainty. Is certainty not a level of knowledge, a rank of knowledge? So is there a hierarchy between these or are these contradicting each other? Inshallah, we'll come to the verses of the Quran quickly enough 
that we'll see why are we created and when it comes to our merit and value in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala how does the whole Quran talk about this okay so inshallah this is to come so I'm not going to sell all the punchlines now but inshallah to come good question yes tafadhalu So, so the question, excellent question. The question is, we, keep, we kept talking about knowledge. We talked about knowledge all day. And inshallah, we're going to continue in a, for a few more lectures. Uh, what does it actually mean? What falls under this definition? What does it include? So inshallah, we're going to dedicate a lecture to that. The answer lies in what I'm going to say is going to be the, the, the topic of that lecture, which is what makes... Knowledge, Islamic. What we're talking about today is Islamic knowledge. So what is the nur? What makes it have nur? What makes it bring to taqwa? What are the responsibilities that are associated with it? And does Islam accept knowledge without action? Is that real knowledge or is it incomplete? Does it include the intention and the sincerity behind acquiring the, the knowledge or not? Okay, inshallah, when we put all of that together, that will be the full answer. Okay, there are certainly conditions, qualifications, definitions that we have to include. That's why I said we're going to address that in detail so that there are no more questions about it. It deserves a, a, a lengthier discussion, but it's an excellent question. What falls under this? When we say knowledge here, is it just knowledge? If I, I know a language or I know, you know, a biological, I have, I've studied biology or I've studied, I don't know how to make carpets or all of this is knowledge. Is it all equal? And is this the type of knowledge that we are talking about? Or is there something that would bring all of this together under the heading of Islamic knowledge? If we said that we can apply a lot of um, principles from Islam to our daily life and that consider be Islamic knowledge, even though technically, yeah, that's my question. Like, technically anything can be Islamic knowledge. Well, not anything, but a lot of stuff that we consider not to be Islamic knowledge, we can study Islamically. For example, like financial like it's not necessarily, you know, Islamic knowledge, but if you study, you know, how to run a bank Islamically, then that technically is religious. Um, so the question is basically anything can be turned into Islamic knowledge. And then the example, for instance, is I can look at how do I run a bank in a more Islamic way, and that would make it Islamic knowledge. Uh, yes and no the short answer because this is what I'm saying we're going to talk about it okay but it's yes and no it's yes in the sense that yes anything could be turned into Islamic knowledge the example you give I would say I don't know because to be Islamic inshallah we're going to see I'm, I'm giving the punchline away right now but as we shall see inshallah to be Islamic everything depends on the intention behind the knowledge not whether it's linked to 
a theoretical idea or a theoretical, you know, abstract notion or theory. That does not in itself make it Islamic. Not in the sense we're talking about. Not in the sense that it elevates your rank in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that it necessarily connects to taqwa. It has to be something that brings you closer to God. So what is the intention? I can run a bank much closer to Islamic teachings to get a better position so that they make me the director of a bank. That's different than saying I'm doing this because my intention behind it is that I think this is going to reduce the levels of oppression or inequality in our society. And this is, I know and I understand that this is one of the reasons why God has put me on this earth. This is a completely different reason. And so, can anything be turned into an Islamic knowledge? Yes. If I link it just, there's a verse of the Quran that says, and, well, I don't know. What's your intention? Not what is it linked to in terms of an abstract theory or idea. Everybody can carry and, and, and acquire and, and dump information in their mind and learn it by heart and repeat it. All of this means nothing in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What means something is what's the intent behind it? What was your intention behind seeking that knowledge? And what is now the intention behind applying that knowledge? Is it one of the reasons why you were created or one of the reasons why God gave you a religion in the first place, which we haven't talked about, and inshallah we're going to dedicate a lecture to? What are the reasons why Allah sends religion to human, humanity? What does He want from them? Why all of these teachings? Why is Islam talking about knowledge? So that we do what with it? So, knowledge to be Islamic is gonna have to have responsibilities attached to it, action attached to it, and intention attached to it. And if you have the right combination, then check mark, this knowledge is Islamic. Can anything fall there? Yes, anything can fall there. So long as you meet that criteria. And that's why you can have much more knowledge in the Islamic sense than anyone else and you've never attended a school and you've never read a book but you have a purity of understanding of these things intuitively or you, you see much further because of the light that you mentioned that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given you just like we saw in the hadith of the Imam when he says and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given people different levels of intellect they see some people see much deeper and some people see much more superficially well this is all not necessarily stuff that you can change. Some of it you can by with work, and some of it you can't. So you're going too fast. Yes. Um, so with all the emphasis put on knowledge as we saw today, I want to see, I want to know, like, is there any indication as to which type of knowledge we should be seeking first, or where from, or from whom? Because like, as we already know, we live in a society where information is available, and I kind of, I feel personally overwhelmed with the amount of information present. So I don't know where to start looking, or from whom, or what to start looking first. So I know if we have any indication as to uh, the answer to those questions, now that we know that knowledge is important. Yeah, so once again, this is, we will dedicate lectures to the types of knowledge, the sources of knowledge, and it's, it's probably going to be more than one lecture. But in short, in short, the types of knowledge that we have, and inshallah this reassures you, you specifically. The types of knowledge that we have, if you're looking at it in that type of categorization, 
the first most fundamental, most important type of knowledge is Ma'rifatullah. Knowing God. One. Two, Ma'rifatun Nafs. That's two. You have to know yourself and you have to know human nature. Three, you have to know the world. Al-Afaq. The Holy Quran says, Nurihim Ayatina fil Afaq in the horizons, in the world, Wafi and Fusihim, and in themselves. The entire series that we're going through now is structured that way. Knowledge of God, we're not going to spend time on it because insha'Allah, this is what we touched on sufficiently and in a minimal way in our first series on Aqa'id. So that's our first check mark as an introductory course. That's our Ma'rifatullah. What is God? How do you prove His existence? The attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What does that mean? So therefore there's a religion, therefore there's an afterlife, therefore you have to live in a certain way. And the deeper you go there, that's the better for you. The second type of knowledge is you have to know yourself. And you have to know yourself as in your soul. What makes you tick? Your strengths and weaknesses. So that you can control yourself. So that you can bring yourself to become the kind of human being that and you don't get tricked by yourself. And you don't get too weak when you need to be strong. And you know how to surround yourself with the things that make you strong because you know your weaknesses. Right? This is not you. Every, every one of us. And so to a certain extent this is understanding human nature. Understanding what makes up a human soul. This is what we study in Ilm al-Akhlaq and beyond. Okay? That would include something as simple as time management and the trips and ticks, uh, tricks and uh, techniques so that you manage your time accordingly and Islam has a lot to say about that. And it can go as far as understanding, for instance, how a person be may become jealous and envious and how to avoid that. Now we're talking about a different faculty. What makes you angry? How do you become patient? What does Islam say about patience? What is the place of patience? Right? So these become virtues. We have to decompose, break down the soul or the self into these dimensions or these faculties, the drivers, the impulses of a human being, because the better you understand them, the better now you are equipped to go through life. When something happens, you know, okay, so this is what's acting up. Just like someone who knows their body very well and they train and they feel something and they say, oh, I probably have a nerve impingement here. Oh, I have my, my, th this nerve or this muscle or this, uh, you know, I'm not hydrated enough. I'm lacking minerals. Um, because you understand how the body works, you understand what's happening. When you don't know what's going on, you're clueless. Is it because I didn't sleep well? Is it something I did in the gym? Is it something, uh, uh, a car accident I had six years ago that's acting up again? Humidity in the air? What's going on? Right? Well, you can do the same thing with yourself, psychologically and spiritually. So inshallah, there's going to be a component of that. We're probably going to refer to it as self-development or character building in Islam in this series. So as one of the themes, just like one theme is knowledge. And the last one is knowing the world. Or what the Holy Quran seems to refer to under the general heading of Al-Afaq. The horizons. When you look, what do you see? What falls under your sight? This is one category. So you can call it the natural world, 
and you can call it also because you can also bring it back to how societies come together and what makes them tick in human history okay and so inshallah we're going to go through that and then where do you get so today we touched on for instance where do you get that knowledge and what type of knowledge do you get already with the conditions or the conclusions or the teachings we we concluded today we saw that you cannot go after things that are dubious doubtful uh, unsure there are reports but you don't have facts don't waste time with those Imam Ali says don't go with things that are simply reports and rumors and hearsay and so this also goes for what books are you reading and what lectures are saying and what 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 all of that okay focus on the things that move you ahead and focus on the things that are the priority and inshallah we're going to go in details there if we're claiming that Islam has an entire plan for all of life it means Islam has something to say about all of this so inshallah we will show that it will talk about all of these types of knowledge when it says knowing the world what does it say does it say anything about knowing how to garden and agriculture and being in the market and investing your money and becoming wealthy for instance does it say anything about that? And there's knowledge associated with that. So does it have anything to say there? Or does it say you're on your own, I gave you all the tools and go figure it out? Because both are possible. And we're going to see that, no, no, it's not as simple as that. Islam gave us principles for all of these. So the first step is, you know, before I tell you, go learn about the world, which is important because that's what we tried to do in the first two lectures. Now we're saying we need to spend some time just taking it all in and getting a, enough of a glimpse of what does Islam say about all of these different big themes. Okay, and then the combination means, okay, inshallah now that I understand what's going on in the world and I understand at, at an introductory level at least what my religion has to say about all these aspects of life, I can kind of direct myself to move, okay, I need more knowledge here, I want to prioritize this, I know absolutely nothing here, so I have to spend a lot more time there or this one is kind of under control or it's not relevant to me and then we're going to see that Islam says there are things that are not relevant to you don't spend time on them it's, it's not relevant to you I'm not going to go learn how you know what to do if an animal falls in a well okay I'm studying fiqh and I'm going to spend two months understanding if the animal that fell in a well and died okay now what do I have to do how to make that well that is maybe 40 feet underground with some water in it is that water pure or not pure? Okay, what if it's a donkey? What if it's a chicken? This is a, what if it's a, a, an animal that was pure? What if it's an animal that was not pure in the first place? A dog fell in. Is there a difference between that and the rat and the donkey much bigger? Is there a time difference? These are real masail that you study in fiqh. I'm asking you, is it relevant to you right now? I'm not telling you don't study it. But if you had only one hour to dedicate in a day or a week, is that where you're going to put your, that hour? That's my question. And we're going to see that this is what Islam says. Put it where you need it. It's not only a preference, it's not only recommended for you to do that, it's your obligation. We're going to see how Islam says, when you enter the market, you go and become a mutafaqih, you understand the rules of the market. You go study fiqh for financial transactions. How do you sell and how do you buy and how do you invest money and which kind of investment is haram and which kind is halal? Uh, why? Yesterday it wasn't relevant to me. Today it is because I'm entering the marketplace. Well, this applies to everything. So 
If I'm a student and I'm confronted to certain things at university, and I'm getting to hear these issues and doubts and objections every day, I would say this is probably a very relevant thing for you to study right now. How do I answer those objections and find my truth in them? If this is not my issue, and I'm confronted with you know, the person who's now having to deal with the marketplace, then that's what's relevant to you right now. And no one can learn everything, and we're gonna talk about this. Knowledge in Islam is not an information dump or you becoming an encyclopedia. That's not the point, right? It's not about gathering all the information you can and just accumulating it. We're gonna see that Islam says, be very selective. You have a short amount of time, you have limited resources, use them wisely to, on the things that matter, okay? So inshallah, we'll, we'll talk a lot more about that. That's, a, that's an excellent question. And inshallah, the whole series is dedicated to answering that question, or a large part of it, at least in this first theme. Inshallah. Okay. Wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi tayyibin al-tahirin. Allah.